0: Hey church, welcome to episode 9 of our summer series going through the book of Romans. Can you believe it's already episode 9? The title of the sermon tonight is Killing Sin. And we're going to be in the latter half of Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bible at home, you can turn there, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. And as we read throughout this time together, the scripture will also be on the screen below. So I don't know if you have been in the same boat as me, but this past week I have been watching the Olympics every morning, been turning it on, tuning in, and every evening. And I, I love the Olympics. I love watching all of these different sports and events that I never watch in different times in the year. And this past week, I was amazed at what Suni Lee was able to accomplish by receiving the gold medal in the all-around individual gymnastics competition. And as I was watching it, they played this story during the broadcast of her father and how her father had supported her from a young child. It was evident that she was gifted and talented in gymnastics and he instilled confidence in her and he had this goal for her to be in the Olympics. It was his dream. It was her dream. And he even built a balance beam in the backyard out of wood for her to practice on because they couldn't afford Uh, a real one. And what's amazing is that as the story is told in 2019, two days before she goes to nationals to compete and to qualify for the Olympics and to keep that dream alive, as she is preparing, her father is helping a friend cut some limbs off of a tree and he falls out of the tree. And he is severely injured. In fact, he's paralyzed. He Goes to the hospital. And he has to have immediate surgery. And Suni Lee comes to her father and says, I'm not going to nationals. I'm going to stay with you. The family's gathered around. And he looks at her and he says, no. You go. This is what you were made to do. Go. And she goes and she competes and she does a great job. And obviously she got brought onto the team and now she's won gold. You see, the question that I was thinking as I was hearing the story is like, what compels her, this young girl, to go to nationals without her family as her father's in the hospital? What compelled her to leave? It was the love of her father. Her father loved her, sacrificed for her throughout her life. And in the moment, as he is in the hospital, he foregoes thinking about his own comfort, And He thinks about her and he says, you go and you compete because he knows how much joy that will bring her and so it brings him joy. You see, every time I read this book, every time I study this book, what I am amazed by is the love of God. That's what's been happening to me this summer. As I've been studying and reading and sharing God's word with you, the love of God is so compelling that Christ forwent His comfort on the cross so that you might experience joy. See, the love of God, which is the greatest love that can ever be experienced or known, is compelling. It is unbelievably compelling. John Stott has a quote that I feel like connects so deeply with the compelling love of God. And it frames, as we dive into Romans chapter 8 together this evening, in the the book, The Cross of Christ, he writes this, our sins put him there, that is Christ. So far from offering flattery, the cross undermines our self-righteousness. We can stand before it only with a bowed head and a broken spirit. And there we remain until the Lord Jesus speaks to our hearts his word of pardon and acceptance. And we, gripped by his love and brimful of thanksgiving, go out into the world to live our lives in his service. You see, the only reaction to the gospel of grace is to go out into the world seeking to live a life of service to God, compelled by his love. God calls us to go. And so with that in mind, what does it look like to go out into the world and to live a life of service to God, compelled by his love? How do we do that? Well, that's what Paul wants to pick up and speak to us here in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. We're going to read through verse 15 at the moment. Here's what the Apostle Paul says to us. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Here he says something that's striking. In verse 13, he says that we are to put to death the deeds of the body. That word, put to death, in the Greek is the word thanatoute, which really means to declare war." So read it again with that framework. He says in verse 13, that by the spirit, you are to declare war on the deeds of the body, and you will live. You're to declare war on sin." And that, that word "declare war," in the Greek, it actually refers to a violent war, a total destruction. You are to totally destroy sin in your life. You are to kill sin in your life. You're to take no prisoners, none at all. That means that no wrong action and no wrong attitude is to be tolerated. That means that no justification for your actions should be accepted. This idea of putting to death sin and declaring war on sin in theological terms is called the mortification of sin. The mortification of sin is a more formal way of saying you do not play games with sin. You don't play games with it. And that has some practical implications. This verse And this understanding of how we are to live a life of service to God, compelled by his love, we don't play games with sin. One of the things that applies to us in our life is that we need to understand that we're not called to ease off of sin like a nicotine patch, we're not called to just accept slowly moving off of something that we know is harmful. We're to seek to go cold turkey, to run away from it, to kill it. As he says here, put it to death, declare war on it, total destruction, not ease off slowly. And secondly, it means that we are to be careful to not put ourselves in compromising situations. You see, it's not just about saying no to sin and temptation in the moment. It's about saying no to that which is going to lead you to that place of temptation. This was something when I first became a Christian that I struggled to understand. When I became a Christian in college, I was in a difficult place. I had that war on the inside as we talked about last week, the conflicting desires. I wanted to follow God. I wanted to follow his ways and his truth and live the life that he had called me to live. I had been changed by his grace. I was compelled by his love. But I struggled to say no to certain situations. I struggled to put to death sin in my life because I had my new Christian friends, but then I had my non-Christian friends that I loved, and I wanted them to understand Jesus and meet him and be saved by his grace. And so I oftentimes said yes to situations and environments where I was alone and not capable and strong to resist temptation. I was the only one that held certain convictions in certain arenas. And it took time in the rocky road of the beginnings of my faith in college to learn what mortification of sin looks like in real life. The practical implications of it, of total destruction of sin and saying no to even the things that will lead you to that place of temptation. And that may be relatable to you. Maybe it was your college experience. Maybe it's invitations to events, social gatherings, where there are times where you know you should say no because you're tempted in those environments. And to really want to put to death sin would to be not to put yourself in that compromising situation. But it can be other things too, Right? It can be what you do with your alone time at night. It can be the substances that you keep in your house. It can be the social media platforms that you know you should not have. It can be how you use your money. It can even be the relationships that you keep close. Or the work environment that you tolerate. You see, when the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to put to death the deeds of the body, to put to death sin, to kill sin. It's a serious statement. It is not to ease off slowly and it is not to accept putting ourselves in compromising situations where we know we will struggle. It is to be wise. You see, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that you either kill sin or it kills you. You kill sin Or it kills you. There's really no two ways about it. You put it to death or it's going to put you to death or at least it will feel like that. Look at what he says here in verse 12 again because this is so important to get. Verse 12, right before he says "You're, you're to put to death sin, he says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh that word so then is vital because when you hear that you are to put to death the deeds of the body you're to kill sin as you live this life of service to God compelled by his love you are to kill sin or it will kill you oftentimes what we think is okay well now it's on me now I've got I've got to come up with a strategic plan I, I need to, to begin to think about how I'm going to do that. The Apostle Paul says something so important. He says, so then. Meaning, because in, in response to everything that he has previously said in the first seven chapters and in the first, what, 11 verses of Romans chapter 8, because of all of that, the natural response is to say, the only way to live a life of service to God is to put to death sin. Because of everything that was said. You see, he, he pulls it out here too and he says, we are debtors, not debtors to the flesh. We are n- no longer in debt to sin because we have died to sin. Uh, we are alive to God. What, who are we in debt to? God. God. But what is the debt that we owe to God? He has canceled all of our debts. He has given us freedom and forgiveness. The debt that we owe to God is the natural response of receiving God's grace, and that is to give God what is due to him, love and gratitude. Our debt to God is love and gratitude. You see, that love and gratitude is fueled by the confirmation of who we are of what we have learned about who God is and who we are in Christ in the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. And the Apostle Paul picks that up again because he does not want us to forget it. Look what he says in verse 16 through 17 here in Romans chapter 8. He says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If you have a Bible at home, underline that. We are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are heirs of God. Adopted children of God. You are a son or a daughter of God. Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor and theologian, says that this is the apex of creation. It is the goal of redemption, that you are adopted as a son or a daughter of God. You know how profound that is? You see, the Apostle Paul, remember, is writing to the church in Rome, and there was a very clear and understood adoption process in the Roman world. Here's how it worked. There would be an adult that was most of the times extremely wealthy and they had no physical heir. So there was an adoption process that they could follow to have an heir that would receive everything that was that adults, that wealthy families. And you could adopt a child or a teenager or even another adult. Age didn't matter. Unfortunately, in that time, it was generally, in 99% of the time, given to male children, ma- male teenage boys, or teenage boys, and male adults. The only thing that mattered was gender. And the way that the process worked was this. The wealthy adult would choose an heir and then all the debts that that boy or that man had previously were wiped away. Every debt that they had was paid for and done with. And then secondly, they would receive a new name. They would now receive the name of the family, which would change their identity. Thirdly, this new father that is taking on this heir, this son, would then be liable for all of the future actions of that son, of that new heir. It was literally taking him on and everything that he was and he would become. And then lastly, in the adoption process, what was expected of this new son, this new heir, is that he would have a new obligation. And that new obligation would be to honor and please his new father. This was the adoption process. It was very clear. It was very understood. And with that in mind, think about what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's saying that you are a child of God. Look what he says in verse 15. For you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. You're an adopted son or daughter of God. And what does that mean? Well, that means, one, your debt was paid. The debt of sin has been paid for through Christ and his death on the cross. You have died to sin. You are no longer under its reign and control. And secondly, you have received a new name, a new identity. You are now a son or daughter of the creator God. That's who you are, a new name, a new identity made righteous in Christ. And then thirdly, God himself is liable for you. He takes on your life. He is leading your life. He takes on all of you, good, bad, and ugly. The apostle Paul picks that idea up here in verse 29 through 30. Look what he says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And though those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he, he justified, he also glorified. Notice I was emphasizing the word he. You're like, why is he reading like that? Because it's intentional. Who is the initiator of your salvation? Who is the initiator of that adoption as you being a son or a daughter? He is. He foreknew. He predestined. He called. He justified. And he will glorify. All of the action is on God. He is liable for you. And it was his choice to be so. You see, what this shows you is something so important to understand, and that is this. Your life, contrary to the message of culture, is not an autobiography. It's not an autobiography. Your life is a biography. It is being written by another, and the one that is writing your story is God himself. He is liable for you. He is leading your life. Every twist and turn in your life is purposeful. Every joy and every sorrow, He is there. Every aspect of your life, He is writing for what He has promised you, which is your glorification. Your story is a biography. And that's why the very next verse, the Apostle Paul says this, He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against his elect? Is it God who justifies? Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You see, the answer is nothing. He is for you. He has taken all of you on in your entire life. And he's writing your story. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. You may feel at times separated, but nothing has separated you from the love of God. And nothing can and nothing will. You see, he chose you. He made you a son or a daughter. It was nothing that you did, but it was his choice because he loves you. And the price was not insignificant. The Apostle Paul says that it cost his son his life. It cost Jesus his life on the cross. So that you are no longer condemned, but you are forgiven and you are free and you can know that your debt was paid, you have a new name, and God is for you. You see, when you hear this, when you receive this, do you know what the natural response is? The natural and only appropriate response is that you have a new obligation to honor and to please God your Father. There's no other response. If your debt was paid, if you have a new name, if God is for you and nothing can separate you from the love of God, how could your new obligation in life not be to honor and to please God? And you see, sometimes we struggle. We really struggle to, to, with words, share about how profound God's love is. It's hard to explain God's grace because it is unimaginable. But we can show. We can show our desire to honor and please God. Not with words, per se, because words fail. But with actions, with how we live. That's why the Apostle Paul says, that we are called to live different now we're called to kill sin to put the de- put to death the deeds of the body we have a new obligation and it's not a burden but it's a joy it's in fact the only appropriate response if god is for us nothing can be against us why would we choose to be against the things of god why would we we wouldn't it would make no sense You see, I want you to think about that adoption process that was true of the Roman society. But for you, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, if you believe in God's grace as hard as it is to explain, I want you to think about it like this. In Christ, you have first a forgiven life. Your debt's been paid. Secondly, you have a changed life. You have a new name, a new identity. You are a son or a daughter of God. Third, you have a confident life. God is for you. He is liable for you. He is leading your life. He is writing your story. You can have confidence in your life. And fourthly, you have a new lifestyle. That lifestyle is to honor and to please God one of the ways we do that is by seeking the things of God and killing sin. You see, this is so important to understand that you have a forgiven life, a changed life, a confident life, and a new lifestyle. Because when you understand this and when you begin to live out that new lifestyle, guess what? You have not, you don't have fertile ground for sin. That is not fertile ground for sin, to be living a life of love and gratitude for God and seeking to honor and to please him. It is not fertile ground. Sin grows where you ignore God and you question God. That's where sin grows. You see, sin grows in the why. You know, one of the things that is true of all children is that they ask the question, why, a lot. Why this? Why that? And a large part of it is curiosity, trying to figure out how the world works, learning, But also, if you're a parent, you know that the question why is also to push the boundaries and question your authority. Sin grows in the why. It grows when we think things like this. Why, God? Why do I have to do that? Why do you want me to live like that? Why do you want me to say no to that? We're pushing the boundaries constantly, rejecting and questioning God's authority, and this is where sin grows. And the why, and the doubt, and the ignoring. And it's so important to understand that adoption process, because what it begins to do is to change how our heart in its flesh in our sin wants to question God and push the boundaries and ask why, we begin to say, how, God? How do I live like this? How do I please you? How do I honor you? It's the only natural response when I know who you are and what you've done. How do I do that? And the answer is, you follow the Spirit. That's how you honor and please God. You follow the Spirit. See, we... In church, a lot of times we use expressions like, I wanna, I'm want i going to follow the Spirit. I want to be led by the Spirit. Or sometimes we say, I want to seek God's will, which is really through the Spirit. We use words like this all the time, typically around things like, I want to follow the Spirit. I want to be led by the Spirit. I want to determine God's will for a spouse. Or because I'm considering a job change. Or maybe I'm thinking about moving to a new city. Oftentimes when we say things like that, it has to do with decisions we've already made or we're thinking about making and we're just wanting confirmation from God. And that's okay. That's good. We should be seeking those things out and seeking to see if God opens doors or he closes doors, he gives confirmation, he instills peace and in the decisions we're making in life. Certainly. But look at verse 13 through 14 again. It's what the Apostle Paul says as we read earlier. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, so if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. So he says here something so important. You kill sin not in your own strength, but by the Spirit. And then he says that you are led by the Spirit. Those that are led by the Spirit are sons and daughters of God. What does that mean? That means that being led by the Spirit is connected to the truth that you are an heir of God. It is connected to this adoption process we've talked about. That your debt is paid and you have a new name, a new identity. You're a son and daughter of God. And that God is for you and so you live a confident life. Being led by the Spirit is connected to that. Which means that when you're following the Spirit, what you're following is that new obligation to honor and to please God. God. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. It's knowing I'm a son and a daughter of of God. I'm to live a confident life and I have a new obligation to honor and to please God. So Spirit, I want to follow you because I want to love the things that you love and I want to hate the things that you hate. See, being led by the Spirit isn't about God confirming your desires. It's about God giving you His desires for you. It's what it means to be led by the Spirit. And so, what that means at times, and that's why the Apostle Paul, I believe, is connecting these things in verse 13 and 14. If being led by the Spirit is not about God confirming your desires, but about giving you his desires for you, then that requires at times, by the Spirit, killing sin, oftentimes, killing our own ego, our own plans killing those very things. And so, the Apostle Paul doesn't want to leave us hanging, and I'm grateful for this because when I say that you're to follow the Spirit, and that's the way that you live out this new obligation to honor and to please God, you may be thinking, "I I still don't know how. Like, can you give me something practical? How do I do that? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us In verse 26, he says this Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. How do you follow the Spirit? Prayer. Prayer matters, prayer really matters. It's not over-complicated, but it's underappreciated. Prayer matters. And I want to say something about prayer. Sometimes when we pray, and maybe you resonate with this, sometimes when we pray, or sometimes when you pray, it's what I call passing prayers. It's prayers from one place to another. Maybe it's from your office to your home. From your, on a car ride, while you're in line for the bank. It's these passing prayers in different moments. And those are good. God wants us to pray to him at all times, at any moment, whenever we, whenever we desire. It's, but sometimes our prayers are kind of like the way we use our iPhone, to, to distract us in between one thing or another. They're like kind of fillers. And those prayers can be prayed, and they should be prayed, but they should not only be prayed. You cannot only pray passing prayers. See, what the Apostle Paul is speaking about here and what we need to understand is that when you're going to follow the Spirit, you need to pray what I want to call present prayers. Prayers that are daily, prayers that are intentional, prayers that take time, prayers that are messy because you're being honest and real and vulnerable before God. These are harder prayers to pray. These are prayers you may feel like, I'm intimidated to pray a prayer like that. But look what the Apostle Paul says. He says, you pray, the Spirit helps. The Spirit helps you in your weakness. Even when you don't know what to pray, he says, the Spirit's interceding for you. You pray, the Spirit helps. Even if you feel like you don't know what to say or how. And in light of that, I want to give a challenge this week. I want to give a challenge to everybody, including to myself, and that is this, to pray what I want to call expressive prayers. You see, I was reading this week about something called expressive writing that is a study around the effect of writing or journaling for 20 minutes a day for four days in a row. And what they found when someone does expressive writing, they write out their deepest thoughts and feelings for 20 minutes a day, for four days a week, that it, all, it improves someone's mood, it helps with anxiety, it gives somebody a greater empathy for others, and it in fact even improves your immune system. Unbelievable. Isn't it amazing that we're wired that way? And that's not on accident. You see, expressive writing, I think, has its place and is important. But we are made to have these present prayers, these expressive prayers. So I want to challenge you this week to take 20 minutes for four days in a row and write out your prayers to God. It doesn't matter how you do it. You could bullet point. It doesn't have to have be grammatically correct. And listen, for you may think 20 minutes what am I gonna write, what am I gonna say? You don't have to say something the whole time. See, one of the beautiful things about prayer, intimate, present prayer, this expressive prayer, is that you can just be quiet. You can be silent. It says that the Spirit, when we don't know what to pray, He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. See, I've found that sometimes when I'm praying, these expressive, present prayers, and I'm just quiet before God, what the Spirit does is He brings up something that I've suppressed, that I've ignored. And He begins to reorient my mind. He begins to help me see how to actually live the life that God's called me to live. How to please Him, how to honor Him, how to kill sin. Because He is strong where I am weak. You see, as we consider that call to pray, the Apostle Paul confirms the importance of this in verse 27, where he says this. He says, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, you should never feel like you can't pray because God has already searched your heart. You're his son or his daughter. He knows you. He is for you. And when you spend time in prayer with God, it is how you follow the spirit. It's how God searches your heart. So listen, you want to know the mind of God? You want to know how to love God? You have to spend time with God. You have to spend time with him. It will come no other way. You cannot follow the will of God. You cannot seek to kill sin. You cannot seek to honor and to please God if you're not spending time with God in prayer and listening to Him. You have to, there's no other way around it. It is such a privilege and a joy for us. And what it reminds you when you spend this type of time with God in prayer, it reminds you of that adoption process you have a forgiven life, a changed life, a confident life, and a new lifestyle, which leads you to one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible, the very next verse, in fact, where the Apostle Paul says this to you and to me. Verse 28, he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, what you find when you spend time with God in prayer, present prayers where you're listening to God and he confirms that adoption process in you, you find out once again that you are not writing an autobiography. He is writing the biography of your life. He is writing your story. That because you have a forgiven life and a changed life now, you can live a confident life and a new life style. And when you struggle to believe, verse 28, because we do, right? When you struggle to believe, verse 28, because of personal struggle and temptations that you keep falling into that are bringing despair, or because when the weight of the world and the brokenness of the world is on your shoulders weighing you down— or because you're so full of worry and fear and anxiety that you you can't imagine how to live this confidence in your life. What do you do? You go. You go to God in prayer because it's what you were made for, to be connected to your heavenly Father. It's why he chose you. It's why he made you a son or a daughter, that you could go to him. Don't forsake that. Christ forewent comfort on the cross so that you might experience the joy of being connected to your heavenly father and the most profound way that we can experience that as we're seeking to live this life in honor and service to him, believing his word that he's working everything for good is that we go to him in prayer. Go to him in prayer. That's how you kill sin. That's how you live a confident life in this new lifestyle. I want to close with a quote by John Owen from his book, The Mortification of Sin. This just pierced my heart this week. He says this, He can make the dry, parched ground of my soul to become a pool and my thirsty, barren heart as springs of water. Yes, he can make this habitation of dragons, this heart which is so full of abominable lusts and fiery temptations to be a place of bounty and fruitfulness unto himself. See, when you go to God in prayer, you see that God can take anything, any sin, any worry, any fear, any weight that is holding you down and he can make it as he says, bountiful life unto himself. Free you because God's love compels us. It really does. I pray you'll go to him in prayer this week and find that to be true. Will you pray with me? God, you are so good to us. We don't deserve your love and yet you love us. Thank you that you chose us, God that you have given us a forgiven life, a changed life, so that now we can live a confident life and a new lifestyle. Would we not forsake the way that we follow you, God? Holy Spirit, would we connect with you deeply in prayer? Help us in our weakness when we don't know what to say. We know that we can listen and you will speak loudly into our hearts. I pray for myself and for everyone else that this week we would spend time with you in deep, intentional, even messy prayer because it is the goal of redemption for us to be perfectly connected to you. It's why you chose us and made us sons and daughters. Thank you, God. May we rest in that. May your love compel.